Good morning. It's Thursday, the 14th of September, and this is Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes: the Nifty 50 holds 20,000 on the bosses and closes over. How super smart 23-year-olds are managing money and accounts from Adani's to the Baijus. What does an iPhone 15 made and sold in India mean for the country's electronics ecosystem? Elon Musk's satellite internet service Starlink attacked for denying Ukraine access at a key moment. Do we need it for connectivity in India? This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. The Nifty holds above 20,000. The mid-cap stock scare seems to have abated for now. The BSE Sensex gained 246 points to end at 67,467 yesterday, while the Nifty 50 ended at 20,070 points or up 77 points. This is the first time that the Nifty is closing above 20,000, a psychological mark for many active market participants. The broader markets too rebounded today after falling up to 4% on Tuesday and the BSE mid and small cap indices gained 0.2% and 0.85% respectively the numbers are small but the fact that they gained at all was good news the gains are largely attributed to a couple of factors the first is retail inflation moderating to about 6.8% in august from a 15 month high of 7.4% in july core inflation at 4.8% remained in line with the market's expectations the other factor was india's factory output which rose to a 5 month high of 5.7% in july up from 3.7% in june driven by a strong growth in mining and power now the super smart young people 24 and 27 years of age is the golden band to do well particularly in finance audits and money management i'm increasingly feeling Some time ago, research firm Hindenburg had questioned the Adani Group's decision to give a big audit mandate for Adani Enterprises and Adani Total Gas to a firm where the auditors who signed off were only 24 years old or thereabouts then and are 28 now. The audit firm has resigned. Now, fast forward to another 23-year-old. Bloomberg News is reporting, quoting a lawsuit that education firm Baiju's last year transferred more than half a billion dollars to Camshaft Capital Fund, an investment firm founded by one William C. Morton when he was just 23 years old. Moreover, Baiju's allegedly hid, not my language, 533 million dollars in an obscure three-year-old hedge fund that once said its principal place of business. was an IHOP pancake restaurant in Miami, Florida according to lenders trying to recover the cash. Now if you want to know what an IHOP restaurant looks like or tastes like, you can visit one in Gurgaon or Mumbai. Morton, the 23-year-old's fund received the money despite an apparent lack of formal training in investing according to the lenders. But he did seem to have training in another department, cars. According to Bloomberg's report, luxury cars, a 2023 Ferrari Roma, a 2020 Lamborghini Huracan Evo and a 2014 Rolls-Royce Wraith have been registered in Morton's name since the transfer occurred, according to court papers, says Bloomberg. So cool. So maybe what else do you do if you have a million dollars plus in your hand in Miami? Now, lenders to Baiju are saying that that 533 million dollars is collateral for a 1.2 billion dollar loan. The two sides have been trading accusations about the loan with lenders claiming it is in default and Baiju's accusing lenders of predatory tactics. Baiju's has gone to great lengths to conceal the whereabouts of the borrower's 533 million for the admitted purpose of hindering and delaying creditors, they argued in Miami-Dade County court filings. 
Bloomberg says Baiju sent the money to Camshaft, even though the hedge fund appears to cater to smaller clients. Camshaft accepts as little as $50,000, an extremely low threshold for a hedge fund, lenders said in their court filing. In a 2020 Securities and Exchange Commission filing, Camshaft listed its principal business address as 285 Northwest 42nd Avenue, or NW. Far from a typical office, the building is currently home to an IHOP, the one we just spoke about. The diner in Miami's Little Havana district is surrounded apparently by a drive through car wash and a strip mall that hosts a massage parlor and a sandwich shop. An employee on shift on a slow Tuesday afternoon, which is when perhaps the Bloomberg reporter landed up, served two families who sipped juice and munched on burgers while Blake Shelton's God's Country played in the restaurant. A hedge fund? No, the server Anna said with wide eyes. If I had someone coming in every day or regularly, I'd recognize them, she told the Bloomberg reporter. She also said she'd never heard of Morton, Camshaft Capital Fund or, of course, Baiju's, and that the address had been home to the IHOP for decades. Now, the missing cash has been at the heart of the lender's actions. Baiju's lawyers have meanwhile said that the company had a right to transfer the money under the loan agreement. Now, to where or to whom is something that I'm sure we'll find out soon. Baiju's was valued at more than $20 billion last year when it considered merging with a special purpose acquisition company. Internet Connectivity and the Ukraine Link Elon Musk made news once again when it emerged that he had refused to allow Ukraine to use Starlink internet services to launch a surprise attack on Russian forces in Crimea last September. Excerpts of a new biography of Musk published by the Washington Post last week revealed that the Ukrainians in September 22 had asked for the Starlink support to attack Russian naval vessels based at the Crimean port of Sevastopol, according to Associated Press. Now, Musk had apparently refused due to concerns that Russia would in turn launch a nuclear attack in response. Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014 and claims it as its territory. Now, Starlink has also applied for permission to launch in services in India and reports last week suggested that the company was on the last mile of securing them. Apart from Starlink, Airtel and Jio have also applied for satellite internet services. Now, whether or not or how Starlink might control access is a slightly different issue in India since authorities regularly switch off internet connectivity in areas where trouble is either brewing or raging. Quite possibly the same restrictions will apply to satellite-based internet systems as well, at least the parts that's working in India. Now, satellite internet is supposed to go to places current networks can't go or find it challenging, so many remote parts in India would qualify. Which brings me to the question, where is India broadly on data and high-speed data and internet networks? Remember, we have an ambitious 5G plan running and being driven by telecom majors like Reliance, Jio and Airtel. And finally, where does satellite fit in all of this? To understand this, I reached out to Mahesh Upal, telecom analyst and lawyer, and began by asking him how he was looking at internet connectivity in India at this point as a whole. We've made phenomenal progress in terms of high-speed connectivity. And I think we can justifiably be proud of it. However, when you compare our broadband connectivity with our peers, I don't think we are as well-placed as we should be. So we have two issues. One is access. The other is capacity. In terms of access, we have expanded access in a very phenomenal way, thanks partly to these costs coming down quite significantly for end users. However, I think our bandwidth are still not amongst the world's best. In fact, we are towards the lower quartile in terms of bandwidth. So that is one thing. Maybe we shouldn't overstate the issue about bandwidth because 
for most practical purposes, even something like 25 Mbps is a pretty good speed. So even, for example, even Netflix says that even as little as 10 megabits per second is pretty good for even decent uh, web TV experience. So we shouldn't worry too much about not having super high speeds. It is worth keeping in mind that our calculation of the number of people who have access to broadband may be flawed for a variety of reasons. One is that it clearly focuses on the number of subscriptions rather than the number of users. And as we all know, particularly in urban areas, I'm sure it's true of you and me, that we have multiple connections. I have a 5G phone connection. I have a a fiber connection to my house. I have multiple of those and so on and so forth. So in some ways, the actual number of broadband users is an overestimate because of our focus simply on number of subscriptions rather than the number of unique subscribers. So that obviously means that our challenge is a little greater than we like to state. The other thing is that 5G, there are positive aspects of 5G and there are also some concerns. In terms of positive, there is no doubt that despite being rather late in terms of starting 5G, we were, I think, about the 87th country that actually started 5G services. It is true that our growth of 5G networks has been quite impressive. We have actually expanded. But again, we should not forget that 5G is an extremely valuable technology, but only mainly to industry. 5G for the end user is nothing beyond faster downloads, which, as I mentioned earlier, are not a critical gap at the moment for most people. I think people have now got decent bandwidths in at least urban areas. So 5G, if we start looking at 5G as a consumer technology, we would be making a mistake, in my opinion, because 5G does not, at the moment, have any convincing use cases beyond faster internet access. Right. So last month, the telecom minister, Ashwini Vaishnav, said that, you know, we are now at 300,000 sites. And I'm assuming those are towers installed in 714 districts. So which looks like it's covering most of the country. And you also said this was the world's second largest 5G ecosystem. So what does that mean then? Yes. So being one of the most populated countries and a large country, I mean, our numbers must be seen in that context. The good part may be that our industry does have access to 5G services in a much wider part of India than uh, was expected. And I think we have done a good job in expanding that access. And as I said, unlike end users, as in consumers like you and me, Industry has ready uses for that, whether it is in transport, whether it is in automation, manufacturing, all kinds of things. There is ready, important applications that the industry can exploit. So I think that is the good part, that we are making this technology available. And just because end users are not the target audience, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of 5G rollout. Right. And let me come to now satellite connectivity. The Global Mobile Personal Communication by Satellite, or GMPS, GMPC, 
system, which Starlink, Geo, Airtel are amongst those who are hoping to kick off. Some licenses have already been given. So where does that stand and do we really need it? I think we do need it. Satellite services have an important role to play, especially because we do have very large areas and large numbers of people who are still unconnected, especially those living in remote areas, rural areas, etc. And here is a technology which can connect them in a relatively short period of time and where the technology is cost-effective. And where the terrestrial mobile current telecom operators like LG or Vodafone Idea and so on, they do not have sufficient commercial incentives to expand services in those areas. And in that sense, this is a huge gap given that we have increasing dependence on internet access. So for that reason alone, we must be supportive Indeed, not just supportive, we must actually facilitate satellite services. Having said that, we should not forget that the economics of satellite communications, even from the end-user perspective, is a little problematic because the end-user devices are nowhere near as affordable as the ordinary mobile phone. And even though those prices have also gone up, but the satellite phones, satellite devices, are still quite expensive. So I think we will need not just to allow the satellite services to start as soon as possible, but we must also be willing to actually nudge them along, to facilitate them, to provide all the various kinds of incentives that are needed because of the role they can play in connecting those who are currently in need of them. So I think it is something which should be a priority. We must also not forget that satellite services are no competition as such to either 5G or even for that matter 4G. We do not have the kind of bandwidth available from satellite services that we have from 4G and 5G. So the satellite services as I see them, in the uh, will be niche services in the foreseeable future. But I think the economics is improving all the time. The efficiency of devices, efficiency of spectrum use, etc., is improving all the time. And I think we should not be surprised that satellite services begin to play a greater role. And it's not surprising at all that some of the major global players are keen on both nurturing as well as exploiting this market. So it is something that we should recognize the opportunity that satellite services represent, but we must also be aware that to exploit satellite services, we would need to do a fair bit at the regulatory end and the policy. Right, Mahesh, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Speaking of Starlink and, of course, Elon Musk, India's Commerce Minister Piyush Goel said yesterday that Tesla, also owned by Elon Musk, is planning to source automobile components worth anywhere between $1.7 to $1.9 billion this year. The quantum of imports will be around double as compared to the auto parts worth $1 billion imported by Tesla last year, he said while addressing an annual convention of Automotive Component Manufacturers Association.
Now, speaking about manufacturing, the iPhone 15 will be available in India in a few days. The phone itself is making news in India because this is the first time the latest generation of iPhones will be made and sold in India. Not all, but a fair number from what we understand. This of course is good news because it represents a step forward or leap in assembling capability and electronics manufacture. So where do we stand now on the value chain and also in the context of the many announcements we've seen from the likes of Foxconn? To understand how the iPhone 15 manufacturing system would evolve in India and which models would be made here, I reached out to Neil Shah, Vice President at CounterPoint Research, which tracks electronics and semiconductor manufacture, and began by asking him how he was reading the iPhone's launch. So Apple, as you know, is a poster child for manufacturing in India, right? Uh, so if Apple brings in an ecosystem and accelerates the overall manufacturing ecosystem for the industry, so Apple has always been three to four months behind. So the gap has been reducing over the last few years. Earlier, it was six to seven months, came down to three to four months as Apple expanded the capacity at Foxconn. And also, as we talked before, the ecosystem is very important on how Apple can have that strong ecosystem and tight controls with respect to manufacturing in advance, because obviously there should not be any leaks and so forth. So Apple is very particular about it. So from that perspective, Apple has done a great job in its ambition for diversifying manufacturing beyond China. And this is an example or precedent set that Apple can start manufacturing right off the bat when it comes to the launching of new phones. With respect to the iPhone 15 series, we are hearing it's the base models which are going to be manufactured here first and shipped, not the pro models because obviously pro models are quite advanced. And obviously there are a lot of moving parts within the pro models like periscopic camera, for example, or A17 Pro. So for those three nanometer based high-end chipsets coming from DSMC, as well as the camera modules, there could be some bottlenecks with respect to supply. And obviously assembling those high-end, more advanced components, it will take a little bit of learning curve. So once we see the Pro models also being assembled right off the bat at the launch, that would be the defining moment for us. Right. And even for this base level, as you said, Neil, that's iPhone 15. What is the level of indigenization that you're seeing right now? Or conversely, how much of it is imported and assembled? Yeah, I think the iPhone 15, I think it would be mostly 90 to 95% the base models will be assembled because they've started assembling that. From value addition perspective, I think that is going to keep on increasing every quarter as Apple finds more local suppliers from packaging to body parts to other local parts. Obviously, it will take time in terms of value addition. The value addition you see for other brands is much higher, like 70 to 18%. As for Apple, it will be close to around 8 to 9% to start with. Earlier, it was slightly higher because Apple used to bundle chargers and chargers were being manufactured in India, assembled in India. But now there's no charger also. So sourcing USB cables, high quality USB cables, as Apple 15 has added USB Type-C. So it will be new form of cables as well. So it will take a little bit more time to have more value addition for the 15 series. But the other 14, 13 series, you'll see slightly higher value addition going forward. So how do you see this as an overall comment on the electronics manufacturing ecosystem in terms of where we're going? Apple, as you said, is the poster child and it leads the way. So for the overall electronic manufacturing, for smartphone, as we've discussed before, the value addition is slightly higher compared to others. And now we are seeing wearables, laptops also being added to the overall duty structure and the PLI schemes also open for them. The next part is the semiconductors also, which we talked about, right? So we see more R&D value addition software side of things and also then 
proper memories being manufactured by Micron, for example. So we'll see a lot of local sourcing. The value addition will increase because semiconductors consider almost 55% of the block materials. The rest is display and other parts, right? Right, that sounds good. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Meanwhile, if you're already shopping for one, the iPhone 15 starts at about 79,000 for the 128 GB model. The iPhone 15 Pro starts at about 1,34,900 and the iPhone 15 Pro Max starts at about 1,59,900 for a 256 GB model and goes up to 1,99,000 for a 1 terabyte model. So that's almost 2 lakh rupees for a mobile phone. Now, the Apple iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max get a new titanium frame, which could make them the lightest that Apple has built. Another hardware improvement is the new A17 Pro chipset. Apple says the battery life remains the same and the Pro models can deliver video playback time of up to 29 hours. I must, of course, inform you in full transparency that I am not an iPhone user, though I am reliably informed it works well in certain conditions. I do, of course, welcome the USB-C port, which is already there on the iPad, incidentally. And another big land deal in Mumbai, not far from our offices. The Nasli Wadia Group-owned Bombay Dyeing and Manufacturing Company's board has approved the sale of a land parcel of about 22 acres in central Mumbai's Worldly to Goisu Realty Private Limited for about 5,200 crore rupees. This sale will help Bombay Dyeing extinguish all its borrowings and pay dividends in the future it's learned. Goisu Realty is a subsidiary of Sumitomo Realty and Development Company and Sumitomo has been snapping up several land parcels and projects across India. Late last year, a Nikkei report said Sumito would invest about $3.5 billion in office projects across the country. Upon shareholders' approval, Bombay Dying will receive about 4,675 crores from the buyers for phase one, the company said in an exchange filing. Now, you may not know this, but Axis Bank's headquarters and towers are actually inside this land parcel in Worli. The core reporters, however, reliably learned that while the Vardias have sold the land parcel except the Axis Bank HQ, Axis Bank will always have right-of-way into its own building. And speaking of property, the Reserve Bank of India has released revised norms under which lenders have to release original property documents to borrowers within 30 days of full repayment of a loan. Failing to do so will attract a penalty of 5,000 rupees per day, which the lender will have to pay to the borrower, the Reserve Bank said. These new norms for lenders shall be applicable from December 1st, 2023 and come on the heels of quite likely complaints from borrowers saying that they were not getting their papers back. That's it for me for today. Have a great day and see you tomorrow. Don't forget to log on to www.thecore.in. Check out our newsletter, our website, and of course, do send in your feedback for our podcast. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>